All right. Second Corinthians chapter 12 was where we're going to be headed. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn there. If not, we've got one in the seat pocket in front of you. And I also want to mention there we've got welcome cards as well. And uh, on those welcome cards, great spot to be able to jot down any prayer requests or things that you've got going on. Uh, and you can leave those in the tithe and offering boxes. Also, we've got Bible study notes there as well if you want to follow along. But as you guys make your way to 2 Corinthians 12, I'll just remind you where we've been up to this point in these two letters of Corinthians that we have studied over the last nearly a year, that uh, in Paul's first letter, he is writing basically an open rebuke of the church in Corinth, a church that he knew very well because he planted it in Acts chapter 18. He spent 18 months with them. They were a part of his family, and so he knew them well. He'd gotten word of struggles they were having with uh, sin inside the church, and so he writes this first letter again, which was mostly an open rebuke of things happening within the church. And as the letter was received, it was received with mixed reviews. There were some that did accept what Paul had to say and try to make changes in their lives, but for the most part, by and large, the people in the church, they rejected what Paul said. He was just being harsh. And then, to make matters worse, there were false teachers that came into the church in Corinth, and what they wanted to convince them of is, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. You can't trust him. You can't trust his ministry. He wasn't even called into this thing, and to make matters worse, he's short. You can't listen to short people. You can't listen to him. just a little guy. And so flatly ignoring the Apostle Paul, making fun of everything that he uh, was all about. And so on top of this, these false teachers came. Man, they brought the show. It was the lights. It was the sound. It was prophecy. There was charisma and there was gifts being exercised and all these things. But what Paul wants to make perfectly clear to them in their first letter is they can come with all the show and all the giftings. You Corinthians are gifted, but this is all about Jesus. We're called to do things decently and in order, and you're doing these things without the most important piece, which is love. This is why he writes chapter 13. It was all about the love that they had lacked in his first letter. And so as we arrived in chapter 12 of the second letter, which was a response to their response to the Apostle Paul, as we arrived there, Paul wants to share with them a vision. These false teachers have had a great vision for the church. And now Paul says, if you want a vision, I'll give you a vision. And he shares with them a story that occurred 14 years prior while he was in Lystra. And they drug him out of the city and they stoned him seemingly to death. And as Paul uh, is seemingly left for dead, he has this vision given to him of the heavenly scene. He's taken up into the third heavens. And we get excited. You know, Paul, tell us what you saw. And what Paul says is, the things that I saw, it would be illegal for me to share. It would be unlawful. It was so amazing, so miraculous was what he had experienced. But what we do see out of Paul is his reaction to uh, when he comes back to life. He's given this vision of heaven, and what's he do? He pops back up out of what seems to be the grave, and he goes back into the city, and he continues the ministry God called him into. Why? Because he doesn't want people there in Lystra to miss out on what he just experienced. He wants them to experience the grace and the goodness of God. He wants them to experience this heavenly scene. And so, on top of this, these false teachers in Corinth, they also 
uh, made fun of Paul because of his physical infirmities. He had all these problems with him physically, likely in large part due to being, uh, I don't know, stoned to death. That might have been part of a reason why Paul wasn't doing great physically. But they looked at this and they said, Paul is weak. How can he be an apostle of God? And what Paul wants to share with them is in his weakness, God's strength is actually made perfect. In fact, what Jesus told him regarding the thorn that Paul had in the flesh was in verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. These guys had it all wrong. All they could see was weakness in Paul. And what he says is, you've missed the boat. What this world wants to offer you is temporary strength, but that's actually weakness. What God wants to offer is permanent strength, which is going to look like weakness in the eyes of the world. It's, it's man's wisdom, but what we know about the wisdom of man is it always comes to an end. It never lasts. And so we see Paul giving them this vision. What he shares with them is that the only place sufficiency can be found, the only place that enoughness can actually be found in this life is in the person of Jesus Christ. That accepting him and allowing him to come into our lives and changing us from the inside out, this is where we receive the gift of eternity. That eternity is found in him and it's going to last while everything else is just simply going to fade into the background. So all this leads us to verse 11. Paul's had to share this vision now because he'd felt backed into a corner by these false teachers. And he says in verse 11, For I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Paul had felt forced to brag about this experience he had, but what he wants to make clear is everything he has is because Jesus has allowed it. What he has communicated to them in his first letter, in fact, First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says this, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? What Paul said in his first letter is everything you have is because God has allowed it in your life. Every gift, every good thing, it all has come down from him. So why are you bragging about it like it was something great that you did? And here's what he's trying to encourage them to understand is that without Jesus, we're nothing. Without him in our life, we essentially have nothing. He is our everything. And when we realize that, it causes us to be Thankful. Happy Thanksgiving, right? We're able to be thankful for everything we have when we realize it all came from Him. It's all a gift from Him. Now, the person in my life or one of the people that taught me the most about thankfulness is the gentleman that's up here on the screen. His name was Ivory Garrison. Uh, Ivory was a man that I met at Parkland Chapel in 2015 when we arrived, and Ivory had a very difficult uh, past. In fact, spending over a decade uh, in prison uh, due to sins of his youth, he was brought down to Farmington. Uh, Ivory didn't have a driver's license. He walked everywhere, including to church. With a big old cane, a big old staff, he walked to church. It'd take him an hour most Sundays to make it, unless somebody picked him up on the way. But in getting the chance to really know this uh, beautiful man, he came over to our house to dinner. And what I remember is as he prayed the way that Ivory prayed, as he prayed about what he was thankful for, he thanked God for air. He thanked God for the breath in his lungs. 
He thanked God for the bed that he had to lay on and a blanket to cover up with. I mean, this this man knew thankfulness that I, I had no clue. I had taken all these things for granted. I, I didn't thank God for air, but I already knew what it was like to not have anything. In fact, his own brother uh, died from uh, freezing to death in a porta potty in downtown St. Louis. Like he, he knew about loss, but he also knew about thankfulness. And so he was able to be thankful. And here's the thing about being thankful. You can't be thankful and arrogant at the same time. It's impossible. The two cannot coexist. And so as I'm thankful, the, the arrogance and the pride, it dissipates. It goes away because I, I realize that everything I have comes from God. It's all a gift. And I can be thankful in that spot. Something else about thankfulness that's important for us to understand is Paul opens the letter of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, this dynamic opening that he has to this impactful letter. But as he begins to talk in verse 18 about the wrath of God being poured out on mankind, he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But then skipping down to verse 21, he says that they knew God, but they did not glorify Him as God. And here's what I have underlined in my Bible, nor were they thankful. The, the wrath of God is being poured out on the unrighteous because they were not thankful. They didn't recognize where their gifts came from. They didn't recognize that it all came from Him. And, and here's the reality of unthankfulness in our life. It always brings about death. It, it brings about death to relationships. It brings about death to careers. Not being thankful uh, allows things in our life to die, but being thankful It's a realization that it all came from Him. Blessed be the one who gives and takes away. And so we have this opportunity to be thankful. And Paul wants to communicate that without God, he is essentially nothing. He says in verse 12, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and in wonders and in mighty deeds. That these super apostles, as Paul calls them, they were apparently stressing the miraculous, stressing the experience that they were having in church. But here's the thing. Uh, Paul, even though they said he didn't have any miracles, we know from reading about him, there were many miracles attributed to the apostle Paul. But what he didn't do was focus on the miracle. He didn't come back to the miracles and want to focus on them because the truth about the miraculous is it doesn't actually change us. That the miracle, all a miracle does is make us want more miracles. Think about Jesus feeding the 5,000. What was the next thing they asked for? To be fed again. They would approach Jesus and say, show us a sign, right? Show us a sign. We just showed all kinds of signs. Miracles make this desire in us to see the next miracle and the next and the next. But what the Apostle Paul was known for was simply teaching the Word. Acts chapter 20, verse 27, he says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. What Paul was known for was sharing the entirety of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible from Genesis to Malachi. He shared it all with them, revealing what God had first revealed to him. And so Paul was there sharing the Word, realizing that miracles don't produce sustainable faith. That miracles do not make us people of faith. They only create a desire to to have more miracles. In fact, what Paul says in Romans chapter 10 regarding faith, 
He says in verse 17, then faith comes by the miraculous. Hopefully you were reading along. He doesn't say that at all. He says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. This is where real faith is founded. It's on hearing and hearing the Word of God. This is a sustainable faith. Not uh, from experience, not from feelings, because feelings and experiences change. They fade away. What does not fade, what does not change, is the Word of God. And so in this, we can be rooted and grounded in our faith. Now he continues in verse 13 by stating that for what is it in which you were inferior to the other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me for this wrong. Now Paul is beginning to layer on the sanctified sarcasm again. He says, how were you any less than any of the other churches I planted, except in the fact that I didn't charge you for my services? So forgive me for not sending you a gigantic invoice for my Bible teaching. This is the only way you were inferior, is that I did not charge you. And what Paul was concerned about wasn't whether he charged them or not. wasn't whether they supported his ministry or not. It was what is the position of their heart. Their heart was one that was struggling mightily. They were actually missing out on the blessing that is attributed to giving because of their heart position. He continues in verse 14. He says, Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours but you, for the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And so this verse 14 presents a a predicament for Bible teachers because Paul here mentions a third visit. Now what we know is he made a first visit because he planted the church in Acts 18. And the question comes up is when then was Paul's second visit? We know that he proposed or supposed to have made a second visit, but then his plans changed. The false teachers wanted to throw Paul under the bus for that. And so there are some that believe that Paul made a surprise second visit. He saw the sin that was going on in Corinth. He was heartbroken about it. He left and now he's writing about a third visit. There are others in the camp that believe Paul is simply referring to his intended second visit that didn't happen, and so now he's talking about coming to them a third time. And then you can land in the camp that I'm in, which says, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I, don't, I, I really don't know. But here's what I do know. Um, that wasn't actually the point of what Paul was trying to say. What Paul is saying here in this verse is, whether I come to you a third time or a 38th time, I don't want to be a burden to you because I'm not seeking yours, but you. What I'm actually after when I come to Corinth is not your money. It's not your wallet. I'm after you. This, by the way, is what God is actually after. He's not after any of the things in which you have. The reality about your things is the only reason you have them is because he gave them to you. Psalm 24 says the earth and the fullness thereof are his. They are God's. Everything you have that you see that you touch, it is all God's. And you only have it because He has allowed you to have it. What God is actually after is not our stuff. What He's after is us. There's nothing that we can actually give to God. There's nothing we have to offer other than ourself. And this is what he is desiring. This is the relationship that he wants to have with us. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, shares a parable there 
And what he says is, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus is trying to get them to understand from a parable what he's doing there in the first place. That over the joy of the treasure, a man sells all that he has. Jesus literally emptied himself of his entire Godship, his position at the right hand of the Father. He empties himself into a man so that he can pay the ultimate price and buy the field. He didn't just buy us back. He bought the whole doggone world back, but He did it over the joy for the treasure, which is you and I. You and I are the prize. Whether we feel like a prize today or not, it doesn't matter. Jesus views us as a prize, and He desires to have this relationship with us. The Corinthians didn't get that. They missed it. They were convinced Paul was just after their wealth. But the Philippians, they did get it. In fact, what Paul would write to them in Philippians chapter 4, verse 14 is, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but only you. For in verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Paul says, it's so wonderful that you gave to me, but here's the thing. I'm not really seeking the gift. I'm so thankful for the gift that you're going to receive from the Father. This beautiful uh, fruit that's going to be added to your account. And what we find is that as we are able to give and be thankful, it becomes no longer a have to, but a get to. That what Paul was really after was for them to understand we in the Spirit are to have a get to relationship with God. That what the law says is if you do these things, you will live. But what the Spirit says, if you live these things, you will do. If you if you're pressed in from the outside, feeling forced, it's going to be a have to, and it's going to feel like death. But as these things happen from the inside out, this becomes a get to and a joy from the position of the Spirit. Now, as we arrive here in verse uh, 15, Paul continues and says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. That these Corinthians have these false teachers that have come into the church and they are taking from them and taking from them and the Corinthians love it. They love a good beating. right? How many of you have been to church and you're like, you know what, I just love a good beating. I'm coming here this morning to get all beat up. This is how these Corinthians felt. They were looking to be beat down. But Paul says, I came here loving you, but it seems as though the more I love you, the more you actually despise me. The more you turn away from me. And Paul came not in weakness, but in meekness, not charging them, and they despised Paul as a result. And there's some of you, especially after this last Thanksgiving holiday, you've got relationships and it feels like that. It feels like the more I love you, the more I'm despised, the more I try to help you, the more I am rejected, even to the point I feel unappreciated. And maybe you've even said this out loud, uh, why don't they just say thank you? They're not even thankful for what I'm doing. 
And yet in that, it reveals something that goes on in our heart, that we're actually looking to be thanked. We're looking for appreciation. We're looking for a pat on the back. And the question is, are you going to be willing to continue to invest, to continue to pour out of yourself, even if they never say thank you, even if they never appreciate what you're doing, even if they despise you? If you are, congratulations, you're being made more like Jesus, who in spite of shame, in spite of rejection, in spite of being uh, utterly uh, picked on and hair pulled out and being beaten, he continued to love. This is why in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul uses the word agape for love in the Greek. The word agape for love is a self-sacrificing, not thinking of myself at all. Not, not, not thinking of myself first. Not even considering what I might gain out of this kind of a love that we're called to love one another with. And in doing so, what happens is we become more and more like our Heavenly Father. And this is why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse four, that 14, excuse me, that it's the love of Christ that actually compels us. It's not the love we have for Christ that should compel us. If you're doing what you do because of your love you have for Jesus, here's the caution I want to give you. At some point in time, you're going to wear out. At some point in time, you're going to get tired of doing that thing. But if you're doing these things for the love you have or for the love of Christ that he has for you, when it gets hard, and it always gets hard, is you're going to realize that he paid the ultimate price, that he laid it all down while I was yet a sinner, he died for me. While I was at my absolute worst, he gave his absolute best. And as a result, it's this love that compels me to keep going. It's the love he has for me, the love of Christ that gets me to take the next step and the next step and the next step. Now verse 16, as Paul continues here, he says, But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. And so once again, the Apostle Paul is using sarcasm here. He's saying uh, these teachers are now saying, Yeah, Paul didn't ask for money, but you got to watch him. He's crafty. He's cunning. Apparently, these uh, false apostles were uh, Beastie Boy fans. Like, he's crafty. Yo, he's crafty. Okay, there's like two Beastie Boy fans. Uh, I've missed my entire generation right there with that. But they are convinced that Paul is crafty, and this is what he's trying to do. That he's somehow going to trick you and get money out of you, even though you didn't expect it. Now, verse 17, he continues and says, Did I take advantage of you by any of you whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? And so there were those that claimed that Titus and even uh, this other man who could possibly be the Dr. Luke that was sent down to uh, the Corinthians, that they were crafty as well. But Paul's saying, look, what did you see with your eyes? Did you actually witness them trying to cheat you in any possible way? And the answer is no. They acted like Paul did. His disciples acted like he acted, and they did not regard themselves but instead regarded the well-being of the Corinthians. And 
The false teachers, however, were trying to convince these Corinthians that the disciples of Paul were just like Paul when in reality they were layering their own sin onto Paul, which happens so often to us is that the sin that uh, people love so much, they end up layering onto us. They're going to want to layer that thing onto you and accuse you of the very thing that they're guilty of. This is what's taking place. But Paul, in an unapologetic way, wants to say, I didn't care about your wallet. I only cared about you, and I'm going to continue to do that. Verse 20, or excuse me, verse 19. And again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. Paul's question to them is this. Who do you think I was really answering to? Who do you think that I answer to? It's not you, Corinthians. I'm going to stand before God and answer to Him for how I handled you all. And this ultimately exposes Paul's motive And that was to be able to stand before God knowing that he handled things in a way that he wouldn't be ashamed. And so he's handling this in a way that is honest and bold. And if you consider this, like when we realize that we are are really doing things for an audience of one, it allows us to take all that consideration of what are they going to think, what are they going to say, I'm going to be so embarrassed away because I'm going to have to stand before God someday. He's really the audience that I'm the most concerned about. And so when we realize this, we can communicate with boldness in love to truly care about the other person. Because it's difficult to share sometimes when you see a wrong that's come up, and yet when I communicate in love, the desire is for them to be edified. The word means to to build them up. So we're not to share uh, truth just so the other side will be railroaded. I'm looking to hammer them with the Bible. The idea is for them to be built up and to be edified. Warren Wearsby has this famous quote that I've shared with some of you before, that truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. The truth that's shared without love, it can just be brutal, but love without truth, it's hypocritical. And so as a church goes throughout church history, what you found is uh, years, even decades prior There was a lot of truth that was shared with people, but it was done in such a way that there was not a lot of love behind it. And so those that felt like they needed to go to church to get a good beating, there wasn't the the building up, there wasn't the love that was happening. And so as a result, people people quit going, which created this whole seeker-sensitive movement where we got to welcome people in. It's got to be love, love, love all the time. But the danger zone with that is we can love you as you come in as you are, but also love you enough to not allow you to stay in that spot. If I really love you, I don't want you to stay in that position. And so as a result, there's a love movement that goes on, but there's no truth being shared. There's no honesty about sin issues in people's lives, which frankly is killing them. And so the desire of Paul's heart is to be able to deliver truth in love. It was the same ministry Jesus had. He was constantly sharing hard things with people, but he was doing it from a place that loved them enough to give them the truth with the hope that they would be edified, to be built up. And this is what Paul is communicating. Now verse 20, he says, For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. 
lest there be contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath and selfish ambitions and backbitings and whisperings and conceits and tumults. Paul's concern with his next visit is when I show up, I'm afraid I'm going to deal with the same sin issues that I'm now writing you two letters about. That I'm going to show up and you're going to have the same difficult things happening in your life. Paul's being very honest here. He's worried about this. And and this isn't as clever as a Warren Wiersbe quote, but this is a Brock Ashley quote. You can write this one down. Um, it's really hard to say hard things. There you go. It's hard to say hard things, isn't it? Especially when we love people. It's, it's difficult to speak uh, love and tell hard things to someone. And this is what Paul's communicating. He's saying, I'm afraid I'm going to show up and have to tell you very difficult things to your face. And he wants to clearly communicate what he's afraid he's going to find. I'm going to find uh, jealousies and contentions and wrath and selfish ambitions and whisperings and conceits and tumults. I'm afraid this is the list. But what his heart's desire is, and this is the same, and it's important for us to understand about the heart of God, God's desire is for us to just do rightly. That's it. God just wants us to do right. From the very beginning, this has been God's heart. If you go back to Genesis chapter 4, after the fall, you've now got Cain and Abel. Cain offers a sacrifice that is not what he knew God wanted, and Abel does well. And so as God is communicating now with Cain, He says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, if you do well... Will you not be accepted? Will it not go rightly with you if you do well? And the answer, of course, is yes. This is what God's after, just to do what you know is the right thing to do. And yet, he continues to speak to Cain and says, but if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And if you do not do well, Sin literally lays at your door. It crouches at your door seeking to devour you. It's not God waiting to smack you upside the head with the beat-down stick. It's our own sin that is crouching at our door that wants to drag us down and kill us, to actually rule over us. But the desire Paul has is what God is trying to communicate to Cain is for you to rule over it, for you to actually have victory over the sin that so easily trips you up and ensnares you. And Paul wants freedom for these Corinthians. This is the desire of his heart. Now, verse 21, as we wrap up, he says, Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lewdness which they have practiced. As Paul is getting ready to make his way into Corinth and come back to them, he says, I'm afraid I'm going to see all these things. And when I see this sin in your lives, he, he mentions two things. First of all, if I show up and it's like this, I'm going to be humbled. No doubt uh, these kind of things cause a minister to question their calling. When they see sheep continuing to struggle with sin issues, uh, Paul probably spent too much time on the book of face looking at all the things like, oh, dang it. And so he's like, this is humbling to me because here's things that they're still struggling with. And so he sees what's going on. It's a struggle. It's humbling to him. And instead of just being mad and frustrated by it, he's actually humbled by it. 
It's a humbling experience. And then he doesn't just leave it there. He says, and I'm going to mourn over this. And the phrase there in mourning, it literally means a death wail. That, that in the, their day in Ju- Judaism, oftentimes when someone would have a death in the family, they would actually hire professional wailers to come in and, and wail and moan over someone who had died continuously. And that was the death wail. And what Paul's saying is, this is how I feel about your sin. It's a death wail that I have. This is that heartbreaking experience that I've got like a funeral procession over you because of the things you continue to struggle with. And so as we wrap up, two questions that I had for you. First of all, is what is my heart position towards sin in others' lives? It's a question I asked myself this week. What, what is my heart position towards the sin that I see in the lives of others? And so you guys are way more righteous than me, so I'll just give you my answers, and you can shake your head uh, up and down, going, man, he's got some issues. But here, here's the first thing that I experience often when I see sin in others' lives. Uh, first of all, I'm angry over it. And I often want to pretend like it's a self, like it's a righteous anger, like I am righteously angry over the sin in someone else's lives. But the truth is, it's usually self-righteous anger. I'm angry at sin in someone else's life, usually because it somehow affects me. <laughs> it somehow pains me. Uh, I've got an issue, and you know where it usually affects me? My wallet. It usually costs me somehow financially, and now I'm ticked off. I'm upset about sin. Not that I'm worried about the other person. I'm mad because it stinking cost me money. This thing hurt me, and so I'm upset. Now, uh, secondly, and this is a fan favorite, I, I can tend to ignore sin in someone else's life. I just pretend like it doesn't even exist. I just continue to operate like I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. We're not going to talk about the thing that makes us all feel awkward. I don't want to talk about that. And so I'm just going to pretend like it doesn't exist. And so this is a way that I can deal with sin in someone else's life. Um, Thirdly, I can be frustrated over it. Or I should say, while I, again, want to make it look super righteous, like I'm so frustrated with this sin that when I'm, in my quiet time and I'm crying out to the Lord, what it actually sounds like is I'm actually jealous over their sin. I'm actually envious that they can continue to sin like that, Lord. But look at me doing so good. I'm not blessed like they're blessed. How is it that they're blessed and yet they're so sinful, but I'm doing everything right and you don't bless me? And you know what that really is? That's envy on my part. I'm crying out to the Lord because they're not punished over their sin, and yet I feel like I'm being punished. Now, the fourth thing that happens, unfortunately for me, doesn't happen near enough, where I'm brokenhearted for them, where I'm really so brokenhearted that I'm, I mourn for them, that on my knees in my quiet time, that I'm crying out to the Lord, like, God, would you please make a move in their life, because this thing that's a part of them, it's going to kill them, and I'm I'm hurting for them in this relationship. This is what Paul is saying about sin that exists in the life of these Corinthians. He is heartbroken for them. Finally, and you guys thought you were all going to get off the hook without being made to feel uncomfortable, but not the, not a chance on Thanksgiving. Be very thankful for this. Um, I have to ask myself this question. How do I handle or what is my heart position over my own sin? 
what is my how do how do I handle the sin that I don't really want to talk about? I don't really even want to acknowledge it in my own life. And two things to consider. Um, one, I can treat my sin uh, with apathy, or even uh, even worse, I can be comfortable with my own sin. My sin becomes like that uh, like that snuggie they used to have on TV. You know, buy one, get the second one for free. Or now they've got. Have you seen these? The sleep sack where they get in it and you zip it all the way up, and I just snuggle up in that sin. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to take me a little sin nap. I didn't want to address it or acknowledge it. I'm just going to get comfortable with it, and we're going to take a nap together. And that's that's how I can deal with my own sin. I can I can become comfortable and even turn a blind eye. Why? Because it's not nearly as bad as your sin. I mean, I've seen your sin. Yours is really bad. Mine is just kind of comfy and like a little sleep sack. And so I'm going to ignore mine and instead focus on yours. When so often what God wants me to do is actually deal with my sin issues. In the Old Testament, there are two kings that I'm going to focus on as we wrap up. The first is the first king of Israel. And this guy, his name is Saul. Um, He is the king that Israel uh, demanded. They actually cried out to God, who was supposed to be their king. They were supposed to be a theocracy ruled by God, and instead they wanted a king like everybody else. And so God said, if you want a king, I'm going to give you a king. And they got themselves a Saul. And God even warned them, when you have a king, he's going to tax you, he's going to work you, but they demanded to have a king anyway. And so Saul became the first king of all of Israel. And as uh, Saul becomes king, God gives him a word through Samuel the prophet. He says, I want you to go to the Amalekites, and I want you to utterly destroy them. I want you to wipe them out from one end to the other. Don't leave anything breathing, even the animals. Get rid of all of them. And that sounds uh, really harsh. But remember, uh, in the Old Testament, there are these types. And the Amalekites are a type of sin. And so what uh, God is calling Saul to do is go and deal with the sin that exists within Israel. Utterly destroy it. Wipe it out. And what uh, Saul does is he does what we often do. He almost does it. He almost does what God asks him to do, but he keeps some of the best. Some of the best of the best. And this is the interaction he has with Samuel, who's been given a word from the Lord that says, uh, Saul didn't really do what I told him to do. He didn't utterly destroy the Amalekites. Saul said to Samuel in verse 20, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. I almost, I kept one, I, I, maybe a few others, but I almost did it. He says, but the people, the people took the plunder, the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. I'm acknowledging what God said, but it's somebody else's fault now. Uh, but they did it to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. I did it for a good reason. I kept some so that we could have sacrifices to God. But in one of the most heartbreaking statements, Saul, who was called by God to be king of Israel, did you note, notice what he said to Samuel? We, we brought these animals to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, not my God. He had lost this relationship with God that was supposed to be personal. He made it about other people. And so he says this, it gives excuses to which Samuel responded and said in verse 22, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is in the sin of which is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. But you have rejected the word of the Lord, and he has also rejected you from being king. Because of his disobedience and his unwillingness to deal with the sin, he was rejected by God. Now, that sounds really harsh. Like, really, you're not going to let him be king because of that? Like, God, is that really the reason? And yet, if you fast forward in the career of Saul, the king, and you get to chapter 2, in this spot, uh, Saul has now fallen on the battlefield. He's got a mortal wound. He's bleeding out, him as well as his sons. And as David now is receiving word, he's going to be the next king of Israel. He's received word of what's happened to Saul. As we arrive in verse 7, he's gotten this young man that's now giving him the news of what's taken place on the battlefront. He says, when I, I looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me. He's speaking about Saul calling out to this young man. And the young man answered and said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And so I answered to him and said, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, please stand over me and kill me, for the anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he would not live after he had fallen. Saul was literally ran through with a sword by the Amalekite that he would not deal with. And so what he says is, I took the crown off his head and the bracelet on his arm and have brought them here to you, Lord. What God was actually concerned with in the life of Saul was this Amalekite that you won't deal with, he's going to take the crown off your head. You're going to cease from being king. You're going to cease from being where I've appointed you because you wouldn't deal with the sin in your life. And this is the case for us to understand with undealt with sin in our life, it always comes back to bite us. It always comes back to kill us. And what God desires for us is to not have the sin that He would have us utterly destroy come back and run us through with the sword. Now, if you take Saul's life as one example of one who didn't deal with sin, and then you fast forward into the life of the next king, King David, and you look at his career, he was a man after God's own heart, and yet in one particular season, when he was at the height of his glory, he didn't go out to battle. The thing God made David to be was a warrior, and he stayed home. He didn't go out and do the thing God called him to do, and instead, as he's standing on top of his house, looking over his kingdom, he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath, and he desires her. And he has an illicit affair with Bathsheba. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. And now the time to cover this thing up has begun. And what's he do? But he calls in Uriah, one of his soldiers. What you find if you continue to read about Uriah is that he was actually one of David's mighty men, one of his best friends. Slept with his best friend's wife. Has Uriah sent to the front line to be killed to cover up his sin. All this eventually being found out by Nathan the prophet because God gave him this vision of what's happened. And David has finally found out this sin is called to the forefront. Adultery, murder. And then you arrive in Psalm 51 and you have David now writing this psalm in a spot where he's been found out. 
In verse 14, he says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. When you look at the life of Saul and his sin, and the life and the sin of King David, you could almost make the argument that Saul's was not nearly as bad as David's, and yet he goes down in history as a man after God's own heart. And the reason is because he was willing to repent. And this is what God is really after from us. This is what David was after from these Corinthians. He wasn't expecting perfection. There was only one perfect, and he gave his life for you and I. He's it. The rest of us are dealing with less than perfect. And so God's desire for us and Paul's desire for these Corinthians is for us to be fantastic repenters. What God actually desires isn't our sacrifice. He desires our hearts to be turned to him, to to give these things up, to lay them down at his feet and say, God, I can't do it. You're going to have to change me from the inside out. And, And here we see that undealt with sin kills, but a heart that is willing to repent, it brings about life eternal. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the chance to reflect just a little bit, to consider how we deal with the sins of others. Lord, help us to be a people that are mournful over the sin in the lives of people we love and care about. Lord, help us when it comes to our own sin issues to be a people that mourn over our own sin, that cry out to you over our own sin issues as well with a heart that is willing to repent, to turn away from that thing. And Lord, it might take us a lot. It might take 20, 30, 500 times to get it right. But Lord, thank you for your grace is sufficient. Thank you, Lord, for continuing to not give up on us and that you desire a repentant heart a broken and a contrite heart. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen.